Hi again, and welcome back to We're All Ears with Golden Harvest, a podcast mini-series airing through Harvest 2021. I'm Kara Hart, and it's a pleasure to be with you today. In this episode, we're traveling away from home, below the equator, all the way to South America. South America is a major contributor to the global production and trade of corn and soybeans. We'll take a closer look at South American corn and soybean production and what implications this has for corn and soybean farmers in the United States. Our first guest today, Lynn Sadlin, Syngenta Business Intelligence Manager, will fill us in on the details. And a little later, we'll be joined by Eric Snodgrass, the current science fellow and principal atmospheric scientist at Nutrient Ag Solutions and a former director of undergraduate studies in atmospheric science at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign to discuss all things climate and weather for the growing season. It's great to have you. This is We're All Ears. Hi, Lynn, and thanks so much for joining us. To start us off, tell us more about who you are and what you do. Thanks, Kara. And first, it's great to meet you and talk to you today and also to have the chance to meet with all the farmers that are joining us out there and and harvest this year. Well, my name is Lynn Sandlin, and I'm the Business Intelligence Manager at Syngenta. And specifically, I lead the area for Syngenta in the U.S. in business intelligence. In this area, we focus on market intelligence, um, such as major row crop markets, like we're talking about today, corn and soybeans. But we also dig into other crops as well that are important in the U.S. and around the world, such as cotton, rice, potatoes, and other crops. We dig into and focus about their planted acres, their harvested acres. We look into pricing and cost of production. And we also monitor the overall ag landscape. And the reason why we do that is really uh, to focus in on key insights that we can provide timely insights to our leadership uh, within Syngenta in our short-term and long-term plans. And if you think about this year, when we're thinking about supply demand and making sure the product is the right place at the right time, our information or insights become very valuable to help our leadership out in marketing and sales, also in supply chain. But at the end of the day, our insights are to aid us as a company to better understand the farmer and to make sure that we're working as hard as we can to put them first in all the decisions that we make. Lynn, let's take a quick look back at South America in the last year or so. What are a few things that stick out to you in terms of of where they're coming from as we kind of gear up for this year? Okay, great question, by the way. And boy, there are some topics, right? So if we look back throughout, here we are in in October in 2021, and we look back this last harvest year from planting to harvest in South America. Well, those farmers down there faced with some of the issues that our farmers in the U.S. faced with, and that being Mother Nature, right? They had a La Nina year that we also saw in the Northern Plains and on the West Coast. But it really challenged them in South America, not from the sta- not only from the standpoint of getting harvest out, because you may recall back they're harvesting soybeans back in February and March and all the way a little bit into April. And they really had a lot of wet weather, especially in Brazil. They were just dumped with rain in that northern, east, central soybean growing area. 
So that really delayed their harvest. It challenged their yield in getting it out. But then it really brought about that second crop or what they call safrina corn, second crop corn crop, to be very delayed in planting. And because of those delays, uh, they were behind by over 20% in getting the crop put in. But it delayed them then in the ability to max out their yield. So they had a lower yield crop. Now, not only that happened there, but we had dry weather issues in Argentina, which Argentina and Brazil, as you know, are the two largest countries in South America exporting crop out, uh, principally corn and beans. And then on top of all these weather issues I just mentioned in both countries, they not only had those issues to deal with, but they also had some governmental issues uh, because for a period of time in Argentina, uh, they had, uh, the government had Im uh, implemented export restrictions, so they couldn't even export soybean meal out or corn out. And then Brazil had challenges with uh, timely exporting, weather-related, but quite frankly, a lot of it related to what we're all in the world dealing with, with this COVID pandemic. So they were having boats setting in the water for weeks on end, trying to get loaded out. They were short-staffed. They had docks shutting down due to COVID restrictions and COVID outbreaks. So like a lot of the things we're talking about today around the world, at the end of the day, uh, South America in 2021 had a lot of challenges in getting the crop in, getting the crop out. But I, I will have to go ahead and say this, uh, while all those factors were out there, they still brought in a really large crop. Now, corn was down but their bean production was pretty well on pace, uh, but it's really setting them up for what the future may hold for us. What does production, total production, look like for South American corn and soybeans this year based off of what we know so far? Well, let me start with corn, saying that corn is down slightly this year, uh, uh, down probably less than 10%, but down from where we've seen in the past. Soybean production overall is slightly up single digits, but, uh, and, but overall, when you look at the total global market around corn and soy, uh, the overall global stocks have tightened up totally. Part of that is due to the challenges in the U.S. from last year into this year, and then, of course, in South America, their challenges in Argentina in Brazil with both corn and soybean crops. So the overall global stocks have tightened up because that's what's really brought about this price increase over the last couple of years that we've seen in corn and beans. It's really got folks excited about that what the future holds for us with corn and soybeans. While corn and soybean farmers here in the U.S. are busy harvesting our crops, those corn and soybean farmers in South America are already starting to plant for next year. What is the South American corn and soybean production outlook so far for 2022? Wow. If I look at my crystal ball of market intelligence, uh, what we're hearing or what we're learning from our analysts and our folks on the ground in South America is that uh, over the last few weeks, uh, Brazil has had really nice moisture. So they've got good planting conditions going on right now, and they are planting a lot. There are expectations that on soybeans, they may, in Brazil alone, hit 98 to 99 million acres of planted soybeans, which will be a new record for them. 
they're looking at probably in the 50 to 51 million planted acres for early crop and second crop of corn in that neighborhood, which would also be another record. Argentina right now is facing some dry weather issues, but they are working on getting crops in the ground as well, if already completed, but they need some moisture, quite frankly. Uh, I think the real topic here when we talk about what's going on in South America is what's happening in Brazil. Brazil is rapidly uh, trying to grow their acres. They will be the number one soybean country again in the world uh, this year for the 21-22 market year. And it, honestly, it looks like at least according to some late, uh, recent uh, analysis out of Brazil showing that you know, possibly over the next 10 years, because we need to be looking next year and forward, that they could probably increase their row crop acres potentially by up to 40% over the next 10 years, which is dramatic. Now, understand, for that to take place, they got to have funding to put develop those land. they got to improve their infrastructure. They also need ultimately government support in a lot of environmental concerns in Brazil to develop additional acres. But one thing we do know is if they develop those acres, they will stay in production. And they haven't had a history of showing shifting acres back once they move it into production. So it is really important for our American farmers to be aware of what's happening in South America, how the crop is changing, and how they're looking at increased acreage. Um, just like what we have here, um, we want to grow the best crop possible, and they do as well. So they'll be looking at intensifying their management of their crop in the years to come. Lynn, when I think of South America and I think of the competitiveness between South America and the United States in terms of corn and soybean production, I think of the one factor being infrastructure. And I wondered what improvements have you seen in that infrastructure piece in South America? Should we be concerned or uh, pay closer attention to that piece? Excellent question. It's <laughs> uh, a great question. I think the thing we need to recognize that is that the infrastructure in Brazil is not the same as in the U.S. or North America. It is not on par with us. They are still behind. However, they have rapidly advanced it compared to, say, 20 years ago. So the main roads that go through Mato Grosso and some of the other states are definitely improving. But I think the single biggest thing that they're working on is their rail transportation to their ports. Um, the, we hear a lot of rumble rumors about, well, there's going to be a train system to go from east to west, going from east Brazil across the mountains over to the Pacific Ocean. That may not be in my lifetime. Uh, however, they are improving rail structure dramatically. They are working on their roads. And definitely this year, uh, they were able in some places to move the crop to market sooner than later. I think the big question that's in South America is when you talk about infrastructure, it's got to be from the field all the way to the port, meaning not only roads and rail, but then what do you have for port storage? What do you have for own farm storage? And if you move into all those areas, they are still significantly years behind. But it has to be something that in the U.S. that we're cognizant of, aware of, and are monitoring because they will be game changers as we look at soybean production in years to come. 
Lynn, I'm just curious, do you know how long it takes for corn or soybeans to go from, from the field to, to the port at all in, in South America? Oh, a, I honestly can't put an exact day on it. I know in some cases we've seen, first of all, it depends on if you're in the eastern states, it's going to be a lot closer than if you're in the far western uh, corner of Mato Grosso, which could take somewhere between 60 or 70 days or more. And we've got some places, I've even heard it could take 100 days to get it to port. And I've heard of others that it can take only about 15 to 21 days. Again, rail versus road, uh, depending on weather and depending on availability of trucking firms to move it. I think one of the big things that happens every year in Brazil and in Argentina, which varies different than the United States, is when we see driver or truck driver strikes and we see port strikes. And all of those bring about delays. I know that back earlier this spring, when they were to be loading out boats for soybeans to go to China, at one time there were over 30 different boats sitting in the water outside of Brazil waiting to be docked and get loaded. Now, we can all relate to that right now because just a week ago, there were over 60 boats setting off the coast of Los Angeles waiting to get unloaded, right? Probably got your Christmas present in it or mine, but at the end of the day, they are still struggling with their overall infrastructure. But I can promise the U.S. farmer they will work to improve it, and they are improving it every year. Now, taking into consideration the 2021 South American growing season, knowing how planting is going so far for 2022, what else does this mean for for U.S. corn and soybean farmers? Is there anything else they should be keeping their eyes on? Well, I, I think it's important for the American farmer to remember, uh, if I could say three things, it's sort of like the old milk stool adage, there's three legs, right? And that is, and the first one is, remember that within the global world, that there are three major export markets. There's North America, there's South America, which is principally uh, Brazil and Argentina, and then there's the Black Sea area, Ukraine, Russia, and that area. Monitor those three areas because what happens in those three areas will dictate the pricing and movement globally of grain and oil seeds. Other countries export market, absolutely they do. France does, other countries do. But at the end of the day, those three markets drive the global market. The other thing to remember, and this is something, Kara, uh, we've chatted about before, and that is what's the cure for high prices? High, high prices. prices, Lynn. Yeah, because when we have high prices, and we've been blessed with that for the last 18 months or more, we, have, we see a lot of run-up in grain and oilseed acreage in other countries. Everybody wants to get in on the game. The good news behind that is no one in the world produces the quality crop that the North American farmer does, whether it's canola in Canada or corn in the U.S. And the third and final thing to remember out there is that we are now living in a new dynamic uh, due to COVID, due to supply chain, due to inflation overall. So farmers this year, now the third and final leg is more importantly than ever before, is to have a sound marketing program. The U.S. farmer is by far the best agronomist there is out there in growing a crop. But he or she has to have a really good marketing plan to maximize their profit opportunity in this developing 21-22 crop season. So 
So that's the take home point I would have. And I wonder rolling with the punches too a little bit, being able to adapt well in your business and management plan too. Absolutely. Being a, being flexible. The ability to flex, right? Uh, now that we're talking about uh, quite extremely high fertilized prices, when's the tipping point that you as a farmer decide to shift acres from a highly intensive fertilizer crop to one less intensive? Or when is the right time to pull the trigger on prepaying and buying inputs for next year and get it at a position to where you can manage it and handle it to maximize your crop opportunity in 22. Lynn, thank you so much for your time and your expertise today. It's been so good to have you on the podcast. Next up, a 2022 weather outlook conversation with Eric Snodgrass, current science fellow and principal atmospheric scientist at Nutrient Ag Solutions and a former director of undergraduate studies in atmospheric science at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Welcome, Eric. Please tell us more about your background in climate science and agriculture. Yeah, so, you know, I I taught at the University of Illinois for about 15 years, and along the way started a couple of small companies where I was trying to use what I was learning about weather and predictive sciences to help businesses make decisions. And along the way, I got knee-deep in agriculture, primarily due to the 2012 drought. That was one of the big things that pushed me to, to, to doing better prediction and uh, had an opportunity when Nutrien purchased uh, my companies to kind of go full-time with them. So since 2019, I have been a science fellow. That's what they call me <laughs> at uh, Nutrien Ag Solutions. And I get to do a lot of uh, forward-facing product development for our customer growers. And it's a lot of fun to predict the weather for them. Well, we can't wait to have this conversation with you. And before we dive into the weather outlook for 2022, let's take a look back at the major climate events that farmers saw in the field this season. And Eric, let's start with the Eastern Corn Belt. Yeah, you know, the Eastern Corn Belt um, had a decent go of it early in the season. And then, to be honest, even though there were a few time periods in Eastern Corn Belt, specifically in like Michigan and Ohio and Indiana, where things got really dry, By the time we got to the end of June and into July, it just started raining, which means when you look at the whole of the growing season of Eastern Corn Belt, you're not going to see, you know, when you look at the big statistics that they were overly, overly dry. It also wasn't hot there much this year either. And as a consequence, you know, most most folks in Eastern Corn Belt will tell you that this this past, you know, 2021 growing season was kinder to them than these seasons in the past. I think yields are going to look pretty good in Eastern Corn Belt. Harvest is well underway, or at least it is as of early October and maybe uh, wrapping up sooner rather than later. Yeah, uh, because they got all the heat that they needed at the right time. And we've not had any major early frost. And there's been some, you know, decently open harvest windows. Now, they've been shut at times here at the very end of September, beginning of October. But uh, it's not like we saw, for example, in 2018, where the ranges didn't quit uh, during harvest. And so, yeah, I think you have a lot of growers there that are going to be happy to get the crop out of the ground. Well, let's talk a little bit about the Western Corn Belt. We saw a little bit opposite this year in the West. Yeah, our biggest concern about the West was that they started off dry. We had a winter where in North Dakota, parts of South Dakota, Minnesota, we had places that were 20 to 30 inches in deficit of snowfall. So if that snowfall is not there to melt, it's going to make the spring rains critical to return soil moisture. And they just weren't there either. So we saw on the drought monitor, the drought area grow, the depth grow, and then we were concerned all growing season long because we came off of a La Nina winter and we had La Nina summer conditions. And La Nina is something 
that a lot of growers in the Midwest do get concerned about because six out of 10 years, it's drier than normal when you think about the development of a La Nina. Then uh, it, it did rain, but it was after mid-August that the precipitation came back on. And so this can be a summer that you're going to look at the precip stats and you're going to have to look at them day by day, not in a big, long chunk of days to understand the delivery of the rainfall and if it was beneficial to the crops or not. And don't forget, we did get some really stinking hot days in the Northern Plains this past summer where temperatures were routinely above that 95 to 97 degree mark and it got hot and it got windy. And that, that stressed a lot of crops in that area. The warm conditions have carried over into fall a little bit, too. We saw some of that carry over and impact some of the harvest as well. It did. And in fact, here at just the beginning of October, not only have we dealt with, you know, temperatures again in the upper 80s and some places in like the western Dakotas cracking 90, but it's come on some windier days and there's been fire risk as well with all of that. In fact, I was just looking at some satellite imagery, some big fires over Montana uh, that were results of the very dry conditions. But remember, it. It's October now, so we don't expect to hang on to that forever, right? I mean, it, it will transition through fall here pretty soon in the Northern Plains. Well, and speaking of that, as we head into this off season, Eric, what can farmers expect in terms of weather this winter? Yeah, so once we get through harvest, our attention is primarily going to turn to how soon is it going to turn cold? What's the precipitation delivery going to be like? And will we see the opposite for a lot of folks in Western corn, but will we see the opposite of what we saw last year? In other words, can we return the soil moisture? Now, nearly all the long range forecasts at this point are kind of predicated on the redevelopment, the second dip, as I keep calling it, of La Nina. They tend to come in pairs of two and they're a wintertime phenomenon primarily. Okay, La Ninas tend to give us in the Midwest, cooler winters and better chance of having more precip, more snow. It's typically warmer and drier south. I'm talking like California to Texas to South Carolina. That stretch is drier and warmer. But you know, the correlation between a La Nina and winter pattern is maybe about 0.4. So it's not super high, like 0.9, but it, it's there and it's a useful predictor. So you won't find a forecast for winter right now that doesn't say the northern half of the country is cooler and probably wetter, and the southern half of the country is probably warmer and drier compared to average based on those ocean temperatures. And that's what most folks are going to use until we get into the season and see week by week how it changes. What kind of impacts do you think that that could make on the 2022 crop? Well, what we would love to see, this would make, if, if, if history could repeat itself, we'd love to come out of this La Nina by about February and then push into either neutral or or, or even El Nino conditions by the time we start planting. And the reason why is El Nino summers in the Corn Belt tend to produce routine precipitation. They tend to produce less extreme heat and tend to historically be correlated with our higher yielding years. It's not a slam dunk. It's not a perfect forecast. But you talk to a Midwest farmer about El Nino and La Nina, which again, we're just watching the ocean temperatures change in the Pacific, right? That's what those are. And they're going to say La Nina's make them scared from drought. And I get it. Six out of 10 years does that. But the same thing, six out of 10 years when there's an El Nino, we tend to do a lot better. So we'll watch out for that. Now, what can farmers expect in terms of weather for next year? And how, how do you think this could impact corn and soybean crops in the Midwest? Yeah, you know, long range prediction, you know, we're talking eight to 12 months here, right? If we look out that far, uh, a lot of that is, is, um, is really done best by looking at historical trends. And throughout much of the Corn Belt, you look over the last 70 years, we've been wetter overall, and we've not seen a, a huge increase in our temperatures, especially daytime max temperatures, but overnight lows are up two to three degrees on average. 
So if you just look at the long-term trends, you know, year on year, we tend to be getting plenty of rainfall for most of the Corn Belt. So I would expect that trend to continue. Although one other part of it is that more of that rainfall is delivered by big one-off rainfall events. I mean, you, you, I'm sure you've experienced those days where you get two to three inches of rain in just a half hour, 45 minutes, and then you might go another two weeks before another rainfall event happens. That kind of disparity and variance has been measured now for about 40 years, and we're keeping a close eye on that. But at this point, I don't have any red flags. It's got me worried about the 2022 growing season here. And I think that we could, uh, if we get that soil moisture back this winter with some good snowpack north, uh, we'd be in good shape going into 2022. Eric, is there anything you'd recommend farmers do now to prepare for next year's weather events? (laughs) Boy, that's a great question. You know, I, I think what I would do is that I would, the way I would prepare with respect to weather is to know my resources. I would want to know who or what or and where I'm going to go to get the timely weather information that I need in order to plan operations. We all know that long range prediction is, is speculative, right? We, we have a few clues and we use those to kind of get an idea. But the reality of it is in agriculture, we do things day by day or week by week, not, you know, season by season. And, and as a result, we just need to know where to go to get that good information. And I hope a lot of folks come to me for it. I give it away for free. And uh, we, we certainly like to be able to tell folks what we're seeing with respect to the weather and how it's going to impact business. You bring up a really interesting point. And I wonder for those weather geeks, nerds out there that are tuning into this podcast, how do you think technology has changed weather forecasting in the time that uh, you've been in the business? It's an amazing leap forward. Um, what's changed is high-powered computing and better observations. You put those two things together, we get better prediction. You know what I told a friend of mine? I said, if we ended up losing access to all of the weather forecast models we currently use, there's a skill that I have lost. And I think most of my generation and future generations are going to lose. And that is the ability to walk right outside there, look up, see the clouds, feel the wind, sift a little dirt, and then know what what things are going to do. My predecessors could do that. They could look and say, gosh, you know, we're going to have to look out later on this week. I think a front's coming through. I see that cloud type. We've lost that ability because we rely so much on weather prediction from numerical weather prediction. That's the models. But the tech is improving in a way that's extending out our view into weeks ahead, not just days ahead. And I'm excited for that. Are there any other ways that farmers should be looking at possibly expanding, getting some of that information? I mean, without getting super specific here. Yeah, you know, I built something for them, and it's a pretty simple website. Just go to ag-wx.com. That's agweather.com. And uh, it's a great website to go and investigate and see a bunch of weather resources that I have built for free. It's all for free. Uh, that will show folks what all these weather forecast models are predicting, plus a great access to kind of historical weather, too. Are there any more pieces of the weather puzzle, Eric, that you think farmers should be aware of for next year? Absolutely. What will be most important going into next year is going to probably be how the South American crop evolved uh, in, in our winter, their summer. I think that when you when you consider what we do and when we do it in the spring, a lot of those decisions are based upon you know where prices are, where global production is, what the numbers look like. In South America, unlike a year ago, where they had a very late plant and some struggles throughout the season, you know, doesn't look to be having such negative impacts on their current planting time period. I think that's what's going to be more critical than any moving weather pieces, the weather in South America versus the weather in North America going forward. 
Well, thanks, Eric, for this great weather conversation. And that's all we have for this episode of We're All Ears. A reminder that we'll be releasing new episodes weekly until the end of Harvest. So be on the lookout for next week's episode where we take another journey, this time from lab to bag. To find out exactly what goes into each bag of corn and soybean seeds that you buy from Golden Harvest. Make sure you don't miss any new content by subscribing to We're All Ears on your preferred podcast streaming platform. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And remember, just like you're listening, we're listening too. So join the conversation and interact with us at Golden Harvest on Facebook and Twitter or Golden Harvest Seeds on Instagram and let us know what you think so far. Thanks for tuning in for this episode of We're All Ears. We'll see you next week.